Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 74 of Impact Boom. My name is Nicoline Arns, I'm a contributing editor at Impact Boom, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today we're speaking with Aaron Marciano. Aaron Marciano was born in Zambia, based in Australia, Bali and Singapore, with over a decade of experience in the vocational education training sector. Aaron founded the now international business venture, Leaders of Tomorrow. Aaron has consulted with organizations like Fairfax Media, OPSM, NAB, the Red Cross, Mission Australia, and Jesuit Social Services. More recently, he partnered up with top-tier co-working spaces like Hubbard and Impact Hub, coaching numerous upstarts at Google Startup Incubator events, and has been invited to keynote at top corporate and government uh, governmental events. Aaron currently dedicates his time to making an impact across his social enterprises, books, audios, workshops, consulting, and angel investing. On today's podcast, we'll discuss how Aaron made helping startups to be successful companies his calling, the common challenges of projects Aaron has been involved in, and along the way, we'll get Aaron's insights and thoughts on the future social entrepreneurship. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Could you please share a little bit about your background and the path you took to get to where you are today? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, thank you. It's a big question and a long journey. So uh, to give a summary version, you know, I'm I'm Zambian born and I think I've been uh, very privileged to have grown up on a farm with some very influential parents in the sense that they taught us work ethic and they also really instilled this need for self-sufficiency because you know farm jobs is a joke thing the farm work never gets done so there's always work to be done and you know rather than telling us what to do all the time they'd always encourage us to look for things to fix so i think the short answer for why uh, or how i became who i am is i think i've always been a very curious person around you know what i can go and fix in the world and i know you can't really fix anything and you can't fix people i tried it doesn't work but i feel (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, we can all uh, make a positive contribution by entrepreneurship or at least social entrepreneurship in the sense that you can look for some wrong in the world that maybe you can make right through creating a business venture that can solve that particular problem or service or idea, you know. So I think that journey was probably always in the back of my mind to do because I know I would get fulfillment from that. But uh, like most people, it took us a long time to discover that I was good at that because I think we all bought to, you know, go to school, get good jobs and become a good uh, lawyer, which was my background. But I found I wasn't uh, as fulfilled or passionate about that. So I kept on the search until I fell into business. But the truth is I probably failed at everything else. (laughs) And then uh, this business stuck really well and it applied a lot of my parental mindset that I was instilled in. And 
also allowed me to really express myself. So that's how I got into business. And, uh, you know, I think it's been five years of fully committed to it versus, you know, I'm 36 now. So the other difference was having an affair with it. As most of us have tried to dabble in business projects. I went full time, uh, 100% committed with no part time job five years ago. And, uh, it's been, uh, I've been really fortunate that, uh, I've had the success that I've had. So that's, you know, not show how we got here. Yeah, I know that's a short story because there's a lot of of trips and moving to different countries, learning everything from the story is longer. Yeah. But well, you can give them the long version. I'll, I'll put that in a book somewhere, I'm sure. Exactly. exactly. The next question is, what is it that drives you to start new projects? Is that a, you mean because I've started so many projects? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because of that one? Uh, exactly. Yeah, well, that's every time a... you're just like, okay, what, what drives you to, to start? I think I've just never been satisfied with good in general. And it's been a bit of a challenge, I think, for me, because I think I always felt, even as a kid, I would do things like athletics. And, you know, I remember one day those, I mean, I'm slightly competitive, but it wasn't more about trying to beat someone else. It was more just trying to see how much I could be better. And I found if I probably ran against people who were faster, they'd push me to get a better time. So it's quite measurable in my youth about that. And I find in the business space, when I meet other business people and I see they're doing it at such a big scale, it forces me to look at ways I can grow my capacity to role model them. Does that make sense? The best example is my probably my juice company. You know, I uh, launched a cold press juice company and... It was going well, and then I met some people who were like, yeah, but, you know, I know you have to make margins, and it's organic food, so we understand you're using plastic, but plastic's not good for Indonesia, so why don't you do glass? And I found, I was like, well, you know, I think it's too expensive. They're like, yeah, but this other company is doing it, you know. So the minute someone else was doing good better, I feel like, well, maybe I should take on that challenge, even though it might have its risks. So by doing that, I found that it actually made the business perform better because it was just a good business, you know, mm-hmm. and allowed me to look for alternative ways of still making sure the business didn't go under without compromising some values. So I think what motivates me now is just asking myself the same big question. How can I be better as a person by pursuing a project that maybe makes a greater difference in the world, you know? And and, and I don't mean that in an esoteric way like this will save the environment. It's just more in a way that if I've already got a project running that's sustainable, can I increase the responsibility around it because it's already viable, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it limits how many projects I can do. So you wouldn't see me going and taking on things maybe too far outside my skill set. Yeah. But I really get passionate now about doing things that are projects connected to, say, the United Nations objectives that are translatable by the projects I'm involved in. And that kind of gives me focus. I, I wouldn't jump into any project. It would be very much around something I can do good that's connected to the skill sets that I have. And I think that's something most people should consider before they just go out there creating projects that may never work long term, you know? So yeah, so that's, that's why I do it. And I'm really addicted to seeing uh, other people happier. So it's very, very hard to turn back. Don't turn back. Keep yeah. doing what you <laughs> What do you believe are the most important attributes of a social enterprise? Um, I think someone connected it really well for me once. Because, you know, social is such a big word. It can mean so many things. But I think for me, the attribute of a social entrepreneur is just someone that probably puts a key performance indicator being community and contribution. 
I think that's probably the best simple dis distinction I can have. And most people say, yeah, well, you know, we have a triple bottom line, which has some sort of environmental community or anthro, you know, like a community development use of profits, but they're doing it maybe for tax breaks or they're doing it for branding strategy. I don't know if that qualifies. I think it really, really has to boil down to feeling that because you've been awarded more success by luck or by whatever, because I really think there's a bit of luck in success. Good entrepreneurs are just community builders, you know. They're really actively involved in making sure their business creates a community that uh, then the community gets dedicated back to the business. You know, it's, it's kind of that way inclined. So I feel that to me defines social entrepreneur more is that when you talk to most of us, we obviously want to be sustainable, but we're also very much asking the question, what's the impact on the community? Whether for me, I've set up a farm in Indonesia, which is a foreign country to my nationality. But I want to make sure I'm not killing the environment there because it's not my land, even though I own the business, you know. Uh, but at the same time, I want to know, am I providing not just jobs, but am I helping communities become better, even with the impact that I've made, which may or may not be necessarily positive with the concrete, you know, and whatever developments we need to use. But we, we're really community builders because everyone is involved all the way through. And then some of that money... I feel has to go back to solving a local community problem that was already there before we started. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that for me, I think is a, is a short answer. Is I think social entrepreneur attributes are always community builders. If there's not that component and you're just giving money, sometimes money could be a problem. I, I wouldn't necessarily classify that person as a social entrepreneur. How did you find your purpose? How did that change the way you live or work? Oh my goodness, do we have time? <laughs> I don't know if I found my purpose. I think more my purpose uh, find me in the sense that um, I think I just had a really defining moment in my life. And I think I meet a lot of people now that uh, entrepreneurs who some of them were born with a vision. They knew they were going to change the world. And so off they went. I think for me, I wasn't very confident as a person. So I never really had it lucky like that. For me, it was more, I was trying to avoid making mistakes. I was trying to really just try and do the right thing by everybody. But in the process, I was doing the wrong thing by myself, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one day I ended up losing everything that I was told I should want and uh, ended up just losing my son, which was the biggest turning point for me. And then I, um, I almost had a near life death experience where for me, I'm probably more motivated by other people than I am more about myself. So when I came to this near-death experience at a dip in my life and I'd lost everything, like I said, I was divorced, I was homeless, etc. If I died right there, uh, some of the questions that came to me that you've heard a lot of people ask you so you have these experiences is, I didn't really live my life. You know, I lived my life by what I thought other people told me to do at that time and it did work. And I was so ashamed of that. I, I lost my, my marriage, etc. But at the same time, you know, did I really love my son enough to show him to be a good role model? And the answer at that time was no. And the last one that really I didn't even know I wanted to achieve was a legacy that he could look back and be proud of. You know, that, that 
even I could go back and say, wow, you know, my life mattered here. And, and, and it's not just based on the fact of what I got out of life, but more what I left behind. You know? mm-hmm. So my son was a really big turning point that gave me the purpose I needed or if you like the cause to really <laughs> live outside myself and really try and make a difference in the lives of others. And that just kind of dominoed one small project after another until I created a dumb name like Leaders of Tomorrow because it's really about my son and myself. So <laughs> that's kind of what gave me purpose in life. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's how I feel. Yeah, it does. In the end, it's always a personal journey. You know? founded several social enterprises. Can you name any common challenges you faced along the way? Wow. Uh, there's probably more than seven. It's just I was too ashamed to write about the rest. So... <laughs> Probably the the biggest thing, one of the things I would love people to take away is something I learned from my mentor. Wow, so many challenges. But the biggest one, I think, is managing your own emotional expectations. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, most of us entrepreneurs in general want to be high. We're high achievers or we think we are high achievers and we want to do good by ourselves and you know, want to be respected. But... When you try a project, generally nine out of ten times because your skill level is low or your experience is low or your information is low, there's a very high chance it's not going to work the first time. <laughs> and because society and school expects us to be perfect and get good grades, that expectation can create a very big disappointment in people. Mm-hmm. And so I think in terms of the biggest challenges I had with the projects that didn't make it on my list of LinkedIn successes, is that I didn't try enough times to do things in the beginning while I was gaining my mastery in the experiences I needed to know how to structure a project because I was spending more time feeling bad about why it didn't work the first time. So I'd lose it, lose the money, lose the relationship, and then I'd go away, you know, reflecting and feeling guilty then I'll go talk to my friends who also tell me why I shouldn't have done it and they told me I shouldn't have done it you know so you just keep in that cycle but what that does is just lose a lot of time and the best thing to do is you know do a SWOT analysis if you like execute as best as you can and then whatever you've got that's working you keep doing that and then you throw away the part that doesn't and then you try you relaunch you know you pivot as they say these days so that skill for me was the biggest one to learn because I had to actually learn to manage my emotional disappointment and not, and uh, maybe this is a good line, I learned it from someone else, is not confuse temporary defeat with failure, you know, because every single person I've ever met in business has temporary defeat, but that's the word, it's temporary. But failure is something you decide on is permanent and you can never move from that. So to never move into failure too quickly and just kind of treat every obstacle as an experience. So that's number one. Second one, biggest challenge I have is, you know, more willing to self-help. So, you know, I'll, I'll speak from that space more because I think self-esteem is a big thing. I was uh, not taking enough of my own time in terms of my journey to the success of that project. Meaning, you watch on TV, uh, you know, Steve Jobs movie, one and a half hours is made it to billionaire, but that one and a half hours represents, you know, 40 years of his life, <laughs> you know. And so we, we lose a time perspective on how long successful projects take, uh, depending on the scale that you want to go, right? So the second thing that I really found difficult was being patient with myself and being able to grow. 
in the third, which is very subtle but powerful, was I'd get advice from too many people and not trust myself and just trying it out. So I'd spend time talking to experts and then talk to my friends and then talk to someone else who was maybe a professional in something and something else. But before you know it, everyone gave me different strategies and I'll just be confused. So that project would fail out of confusion because I'll be changing the strategy every time someone gave me feedback. So yes, feedback is important, but I think at the end of the day, you've got to finally make a decision and then look for people that support your decision versus different ways of doing the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the last one would be just thinking I needed money. You know, we all think we need resources to solve a particular problem because we need to buy things to produce. Now that could be true sometimes, but the reality is you could probably connect with the right person who has some of those resources and they could easily create an exchange with you to get the same solution. Mm-hmm. But we spend more time trying to find the money instead of developing the relationships that can help us create a successful project. Does that make sense? I spend too much time trying to do it all on my own rather than trying to build a support network around me of skilled people who could have done it for free and probably I would, my operational costs wouldn't have been as expensive as they were and then I'd run out of money anyway. So I found out that money is not the issue. It was a lack of network <laughs> was the issue. And so I spent... Uh, my later years more time building networks and i found my projects were way 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 more successful over time i have one thing about organizations how might organization best create a positive work environment of collaboration where everyone contributes their best you talk about you work in a lot of communities especially like the local communities how can you optimize those organizations so everybody can be the best they can be Yeah, that's a big question. I mean, I'm a business coach, so, you know, I, I, I have a boring life of being obsessed with organizational flow. <laughs> uh, so I just want to make sure I don't spend 10 years explaining it. But, you know, I'm a little bit controversial on some of these topics because I, I only speak from my limited experience of what's worked for me. Let's start with the values because values is my, my passion topic. Um, I've built a lot of businesses with people not aligned with my values. And out of the interest of, I don't know if you've heard of the approach called autocracy, yeah. flatline structure type organizations where everybody gets to contribute and import and na-na-na. I think these are very, very powerful because I think everyone deserves a voice. Yeah? Mm-hmm. yeah I just want to say that before I go there. I think everyone deserves a voice and I feel there should be equal opportunities for people to feel there's open communication within an organization. Because some organizations don't have that culture. Because information needs to flow across divisions, up, down, if there's a division at all, even if there isn't a division. So that I value. However, I think there's a big difference between that and having an agenda to have the right person in the right seat. Okay? So the value there is performance. And I think... What's missing in some social enterprises is they don't have enough of a performance objective. And so they design their organizations around social value. But yet the objective for me of any enterprise is to go and solve a community issue or a community problem or have an objective, right? So if that's the main goal, then the organization then has to ask the question, who are the right people who are capable to solve that issue, willing to solve that issue and what is the right position for that person to be able to feel they're empowered in that position to do it. Is that making sense? So when I'm evaluating people in a social enterprise, I need 
to see if they're ticking all three boxes because I value those things because of the end objective is to produce a result or a solution for the community. Otherwise, the problem never gets solved. And I won't mention any big brands. They just become administrative heavy. Yeah? Yeah. When I coach my executive clients that have teams of people, we use the analogy of a bus instead of a pancake. Because <laughs> in a bus, it has to go from A to B and then the specific seats, but there's always a driver. And I think the driver is the founder of the organization. And he's the one that has to be responsible for two things, integrating the values, but also creating the values. So if he doesn't create and lets the mob create the values, the only thing mobs do is destroy things, even, even with the best of intentions. So the founder has to have the clear values in place and then recruits the, the tribe or the team or the community that share those values. So I feel that it still needs a leadership role for a leader to decide on the top three values at least, and then you create a community there. Because if you just go look for a community, there's so many agendas, so many multiple values, but that's okay until you have an objective. And the va some values are not aligned with a certain objectives. So I challenge a lot of founders with this, and I find every time they marry the bus analogy and divorce the pancake analogy, they seem to achieve their objectives and stay more sustainable cohesively as a team. So that brings me to the structure now of obviously once you do the first part of knowing what your values are as a founder, it, it becomes simpler to then look at which organizational structures fit those values. Because like a human body, the human body functions upright at optimum. It has a brain, two arms, two legs, one heart. You know, some things are two, some are one. So it's the same as the bus. You start to create it in the same way because your value is I'm a human being. And human beings do this, you know. But if you're a dog, then you've got four legs on the floor, a tail that does whatever, and you probably bark and don't speak a lot, so communication is not that important. It's more primal. Mm -hmm. So I think once the you look at these basic human nature or, or natural analogies, it frees us up from the complexities of research around trying to do the method of the day because, you know, Zeppel is doing it or, or Apple is doing it versus is Apple objectives the same as mine? If the answer is no, you look for a company that has similar values and similar objectives, and then you mirror the structure that they use, mm -hmm. but it's based on the values that you already currently have. So I feel I'm more flexible with the structure, but I'm very rigid with values because I think those are things you're born with. No one needs to teach me how to be kind. I was born in an environment that valued kindness. So I tend to expect that from my team, my key partners, my organization of flow is kind to freedom. Because, you know, I was in Spain with you, but my business was still running somewhere else across the world. Because that I value and that comes with being kind to people with their time and their independence, right? Mm -hmm. So I hope that makes sense, yeah, it makes sense in how I'll pick the structure. But when I teach it, I use the human body because I feel the most efficient way most organisms work is if they have one brain, one heart, and a couple of functionalities. So that's one CEO, one culture CEO, because that's the person responsible for the values. And then the rest seems to just dovetail really well uh, without too much forcing. And it's very efficient because you spend the money accordingly, you know, the resources. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, um, that's kind of how I coach it, but hope that makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. Thank you very much. <laughs>
<laughs> and we already talked that for you money is not the big thing but one of the questions that a lot of listeners always are looking for is when it comes to successfully getting finance as a social entrepreneur what are the top three recommendations you make to help organizations on their journey in my opinion true social entrepreneurs appreciate that the only way to create long-lasting sustainable change is by being financially sustainable because if you're not financially sustainable you can't continue to operate as a entity in the in the business sense so even though we have a social objective it doesn't become the excuse to not become financially resourceful hopefully i'm qualifying the two because i probably fall and you know half of the audience who hate me for this but i'm a social entrepreneur but i'm a full profit social entrepreneur and i'm not a non for profit social entrepreneur because non for profit is already setting up the culture that you don't want to make any profits but allow me to define what profit means i'm a profitable person if i was insecure and then i become more confident that is a gain in the positive sense beyond my normal expectation so it's profitable to be more confident for business or life correct mm -hmm. yeah. i'm more profitable if i'm healthier and maybe you have to buy organic food but if i have to do that i probably still need to give some money to somebody and not just hugs and so i'm more profitable again in that context yeah. so in the legal sense a business has a sustainability concern which is the legal and primary function of it and so if you're always in a loss you are killing your organization so it's almost like taking a cell and choking the oxygen out of it my encouragement to a lot of us social entrepreneurs because i had the same problem when i started was to start to have a healthy relationship with money because it's one of the main resources needed to service the business so that you can continue to do good in the world so this is why i always encourage people to move away from non for profit which is expecting the government or some other entity to give you money and then it, you start falling into an administrative heavy business and then you stop delivering the outcomes which is why you started in the first place whereas when you are profitable and you look at more for profit opportunities you can still leverage short term government grants etc etc or scholarships whatever you coupons i don't care but you start looking at how can you commercialize yourself so that you can continue to do good beyond yourself as an entrepreneur because i think a true business needs to perform post your death you know because yeah. that's when you really know you're there to do good for the world mm -hmm. um and the best example i can give you is world vision I'm not saying anything good or bad about them but in my community i'm a product of an experience when they had money to send to us we had the support but the minute they ran out of money because they couldn't get government funding or whatever the places they built became derelict yeah. and the help became detrimental so we were now worse off because we had tasted the chocolate sweets and we had tasted the nice clothes we had tasted all these fancy stuff and then we had to go back to the old and that bridge was so hard people psychologically yeah. were traumatized so i think as social entrepreneurs we need to remember these examples and go how could world vision be more sustainable financially so that they can keep doing good and scale out to the rest of the world versus getting a million dollar payout from a government for example and then next time donald trump gets in power and he doesn't support it 
you have to claw back those resources. So I just don't encourage non-for-profits for that reason. So my point is I, I actually value money, but as you said, it's just in my top five now, whereas when I was a do-gooder, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't even in my top five, but then I never made it and then I struggled and my projects failed. So it needs to be in the top five priorities as a business owner. Otherwise, you won't be looking for opportunities to be self-sufficient and you won't do long term. So I know that's a bit too tough for some people to digest, but remember the African story from Aaron Mashano, and I hope that gives you the courage to get a little bit socially capitalistic in, in the looseness of that word without losing your soul, <laughs> you know, because it's not about that. It's, it's about protecting the integrity of your projects without needing government intervention or government agendas, which spoil what we start. And that's happened all over the news. We've all seen it. So yeah, yeah. the model of that doesn't work. Non-for-profit isn't working at the moment. So I'm just trying to challenge everybody to step it up a bit. That's one alternative. Go Bitcoin. I don't care. But that's just one obvious place I think we should clarify <laughs> why I still focus the money, but not necessarily on that. Yeah? That's a great insight. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Thank you very much. Being a father, can you see some challenges that our future generations will face? And what are the key skills you believe are crucial to our students? So I've, I've done a bit of growing up, growing up also since I uh, spoke to you because I started questioning my intentions and then my mm -hmm. content. You know, I can preach motivation. I can preach inspiration. I can preach following your passion. But the truth is technology is moving so fast which is good, science, medicine, discoveries in the spiritual realm, environmental. We have a lot of technology that can solve a lot of the immediate problems we have. So I don't think it's an issue of technological information development is the issue here. I think the issue is the lack of real implementable education, okay? Yeah. So connected to my son, rather than teaching him the next mobile phone app or platform that he can use, to pick up rubbish in the neighborhood. I'd rather make sure he understands the impact of rubbish and then look for the practical, applicable in time where they are. Because if we don't make that connection, again, we'll be offering money solutions or application solutions, spend a lot of money and time doing this for future generations, and yet they're disconnected from it, you yeah. see? So we need to connect them first to the problem. And then it's natural that we evolve into helping with that solution together with the person trying to make the change. And I know this personally. I've been trying to help my African family for so long, but they see TV, they see McDonald's, Mercedes-Benz, iPhones. They want those things. I can't tell them you don't need those. In fact, you need less technology. We in the West have experienced it, so we can suggest it and say go technological free. For them, it's a sign of wealth and intelligence if they have two mobile phones, but they don't understand it costs you 20, 30, 40 euros every month just to maintain those things. And they don't have that sustainability. So we have to first engage them on the basic experience. So I think if I were to talk to my son, number one is we just need better role models that are bridging the gap between technology and the reality of the world. Okay, so I think us as parents just need to practice what's conscientious about our consumption and show our kids so they can connect with why we throw things in the bin and why we don't, sorry, why we recycle and why we don't throw trash or why we eat healthy, whatever it is. Yeah. That's number one. But I think how we do that, which is the disconnect, like I said, because technology is so fast, people are just 
like making lights, but it doesn't mean they're really going to change their mindset. We have to start helping people think through what can they do individually that actually creates impact. And then how do we measure that? You know, because if you can't measure it, a like or a forward may not be enough because people are aware they need to lose weight by eating less McDonald's, but it doesn't stop them going to McDonald's. And I think the future generation are missing the connection. So they're very disengaged. So I think us as parents can take us offline a little bit more and really bring them back to what's needed and then reintroduce platforms that connect us again. And that way they'll be maybe more connected with it. So that's what I would recommend, but that's me and I'm a, I'm a single father, so <laughs> maybe take it on a grain of salt because, you know, what do I know, right? But, you know, I'm making fun, but it's not too far for the truth. <laughs> that's what I would do. That's what I, I intend to do with my son, but uh, that might not be applicable to all parents. I just have to be careful <laughs> and put a disclaimer out there. <laughs> you founded enterprises in Africa, Australia, and Indonesia, and Singapore which all have their own policies and challenges and solutions. Are there any countries in particular you believe are really leading the charge when it comes to social innovation? What are they doing that you think other governments around the world could adapt? I think a perfect example I can use to sum it all up from my experience is I really found it harder to do good in some developed countries because they were very much focused on safety over innovation because time-tested methods are safe. They get consistency, that's true. But the challenge with some of that is what's that saying about nature? The things that tend to be the strongest in nature aren't the most strongest or developed, it's the most adaptable. What I find in developing countries that governments are more involved in because they maybe they don't have enough money, they don't have a lot of social security, they really encourage people to start side projects alongside their full-time vocation because there's no guarantees. They have looser laws to encourage people to try solve their own local problems. Okay. okay? Yeah. So I feel and I believe that we have governments, but the governments now, and we all know this, but we refuse to admit it, there's a big aging population of baby boomers, superannuation and things like that don't work anymore. Not because they can't, it's just the aging population is living too long that they're utilizing all the resources mm -hmm. that would have otherwise gone into current projects, right? So the government as an entity can no longer be responsible for the basic fundamentals that solve community problems. We as individuals need to start becoming more entrepreneurial to be able to create innovations at a local level. And that's really what I think is the beauty of social entrepreneurship. But to do this, we need the government to be aware and become, as I said, more adaptable mm -hmm. to loosen the laws because the real problem is they know they can't sustain the problem and solve it anymore. It's just too big now. And this is where privatization is coming in. And unfortunately, the private sector is taking over the world. It's mainly because the private sector entrepreneurs are solving that demand, which is creating a lot of wealth for them. But not all the demand is motivated by community objectives. It's motivated by opportunities. But if the government were to see the trend, they'll then empower the social communities or communities at large, I, I believe, to 
look at maybe, and this is why Bali is amazing. Bali has this thing called the Banja. The Banja is like a local community council that address their own problems. They have the local police and they're just their own little entity. So it's quite dynamic in one area, completely different in another, but they look after the trash. They look after the medical. They look after all that, you see? And it's a little bit more autonomous and self-managed. Now, it has its problems, but the reality is there's not a lot of money in this country at the bottom end of town. Mm -hmm. People don't have complaints because they know where to go to solve those problems in a local area. They don't have to wait for a vote or stuff like that. You see what I mean? Yeah. That, I think, is something the West can learn from, not because they can, but because they have to. It's yeah. just whatever they're doing now, they're underutilized. So this is an alternative way to stop lying to the public by saying, we just need you to work till you're 900 years old. The reality is they've run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not sustainable and rather than telling people to work too much why not empower them to look after themselves and look after the elderly and look after their medicals and they might have unique needs that the government at the national level can't support you know what i mean yeah but that's what i see as a social entrepreneur is give the power back to the local communities are there any great social impact books or resources that you could recommend to our listeners as a final question Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, too many. I, I read over 60 books a year. Maybe better I say what I'm reading now that's really making a difference. So one of the books that's really profound that I think every social entrepreneur should read, it's called Small Giants. And Small Giants really encourages people to have high quality their businesses in terms of financial sustainability, community impact, make a massive qualitative contribution without thinking they need to be famous around the world to do it and just it's a change of gears but in there also encourages people that slow is fast you know you can really make a huge difference be a great company and nobody knows about you apart from the people you're trying to help so which is probably always number one for me is the alchemist uh that changed my life <laughs> you know the alchemist is a business book but it's a life book and i think what's missing in society now is a lot of people are teaching strategy but they're not teaching life skills and no matter where you go in life life skills will take you further in business than business strategies you know so mm -hmm. i always recommend people read that book uh, so i read that every three months the third one i'm also really enjoying high performance habits by brendan bashad mm -hmm. I know for most people, they don't compete. Come on. I really say, you know, he's in my industry. He's teaching 80% what I teach, but he is just a masterful at keeping it simple based on research on the things that actually matter to peak perform. And why I recommend him, even though maybe I should be recommending my own books, is I think once you find someone who can articulate something simpler and more beneficial and consistent mm -hmm. across the spectrum of business, yeah. it makes sense to give the credit where it's due because I don't want to spend another 36 years to prove to myself that these things are the things most people need to focus on. So if I can recommend anything to anyone in the business industry is read that book because it just talks about the six things we all need to do. And if we do those things, we're going to be better entrepreneurs, but we're going to be better people. And money doesn't actually matter in terms of feeling successful. Mm -hmm. What matters is being masterful in a few areas 
that give you a quality output. And that's why I said about what I said about focusing on one problem and just attacking it and being sustainable at it and being remembered for it or whatever. So I read those three books regularly to remind me. Aaron, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very, very much. Thank you, thank you very much. much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter. Thank you.